us um, with McGrath's book, we're talking about the idea of the story-shaped world. And as we talk about the idea of the story-shaped world, we're going to be looking at a few things that relate to Lewis's formulation of why story was so unbelievably important. And so this particular video that we're going to watch uh, is of a um, choral anthem that's called And I Saw the New Heaven and the New Earth, which is the text from Revelation, which is on your handout. Hopefully you can sort of follow along. But uh, it's kind of a triple play for C.S. Lewis with this video here because this is King's College Cambridge Chapel, which was Lewis's favorite sacred space in the world. Um, King's College also has a very famous men and boys choir that Lewis used to like to go and hear. And this particular anthem is drawn from the same passage that influenced some of what Lewis did in Narnia. And I hope I've turned it up a little bit too loud um, because this anthem should kind of blast you a little bit when it gets to the loud parts. So that's, that is part of the experience. So we will hope that it actually works.
So, if you were able to follow along with the words there, you might have noticed several things if you are a devotee of the Chronicles of Narnia that are much like what you see in the story. And part of the reason I wanted you to hear that is that the, the beauty and the longing that comes through in that music are very much the types of things that Lewis is thinking about when he's talking about this idea of the story-shaped world. And you see in that, to use the big fancy word of anthropomorphization, um, of God being a person, God literally wiping the tears from your eyes. You may remember scenes in Narnia where Aslan wipes tears from people's eyes. And then the whole, the whole text of that, when we get to talking about Lewis's The Last Battle, it's drawn very much, his understanding of the new Narnia is drawn very much from the Revelation texts about heaven. So uh, much to look forward to with that. But moving right along, uh, just a quick review of the story-shaped <coughs> world idea. Part of the reason this is so important is that we live in a culture where people don't understand what story they're living in. They exist more than understand themselves as part of a story. And there's a lot of uh, press right now, if you read uh, very much in different journals, looking at social trends, there's a lot of talk right now about how desperate people are to find their tribe to try to find the place where they belong uh, in this very fragmented culture. And part of that is finding a story that resonates. And this particular chapter in McGrath's book uh, has a lot of really good things in it. And the idea is basically that you have to figure out what your fundamental story is. What are the beliefs about what it means to live a good life? What happens when you die? How do you know what's right and wrong? What brings joy? All those kinds of questions. Your story needs to be able to answer those. And the big fancy word for that in worldview study is meta-narrative. But story works really just as well. It's just a story <laughs> that explains everything. And so the question um, that Lewis asks is, what story are you in? And have you chosen your story wisely have you challenged the story you tell yourself if it doesn't align with reality? And part of the issue that we have in our culture is that we try to live in multiple stories simultaneously. And that doesn't work very well if you want to live an integrated, purposeful life. So the idea here is that Lewis is saying we are spellbound in the worst sense of that, that it's as if we are all under an evil enchantment. And the evil enchantment tells us that worldly success and what other people think of us are the most important things in the world. And Lewis, in The Weight of Glory and in a lot of the rest of his writing, says, no, 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 no. We've got to break the spell that we're under. We have to break this enchantment. We have to break this false understanding of reality that tells us that this life is all there is, that anything that's transcendent, that's what's a myth. 
And Lewis says, no, no, no. The myth with a capital M is capital T true, that there is more, that there is a spiritual reality, that there is a heavenly reality, and that there is a kingdom with a capital K with a king who is Jesus Christ. So <laughs> this whole idea of trying to recover this idea of the transcendent is what Lewis is about with this idea of story. And this is, for those of you who were here last week, this is all review. So part of the idea here is that, and I'm just going to read this aloud because it's really good. When they want to convince you that Earth is your final home, notice how they set about it. They begin by trying to persuade you that Earth can be made into heaven, thus giving a sop to your sense of exile in Earth as it is. Next, they tell you that this fortunate event is still a good way off in the future, thus giving a sop to your knowledge that the fatherland is not here and now. Finally, lest your longing for the trans-temporal should awake and spoil the whole affair, they use any rhetoric that comes to hand to keep out of your mind the recollection that even if all the happiness they promised could come to man on earth, yet still each generation would lose it by death, including the last generation of all, and the whole story would be nothing, as if we could believe that any social or biological development on this planet will delay the senility of the sun or reverse the second law of thermodynamics. So it's basically that idea of trying to think that you're going to achieve heaven on earth, that you can create utopia if you enact enough laws, if you get people to behave the way you want them to, that all of that is uh, a fantasy. It's very much like when we're studying Mythopoeia, that whole idea of progress, where Lewis and Tolkien uh, were on opposite views about that, where Lewis was buying into this, this meta-narrative at the time, the atheistic one, that we, if we try hard enough, we can be better. But he eventually came around to Tolkien's point of view when he was converted to Christianity that the only hope for us is not in our self-perfection, but an understanding that we are actually citizens of a different kingdom and that we actually live and were made for a different reality. So breaking the secular spell is really, really important. And I'm going to reread this little part at the top because this is really important for understanding what Lewis says about story. So Addison's walk is where Lewis and Tolkien walked the night he was converted to Christianity. And they talked about myth. For most people today, a myth is a false story. Maybe a story that was once thought to be true or something that was invented to deceive people. For Tolkien and Lewis, myth means something like a grand narrative or narrated worldview. For Tolkien, the Gospels narrate a story of a larger kind, which embraces what is good, true, and beautiful in the great myth of literature, expressing it as a far-off gleam or echo of evangelium, that is, gospel, in the real world. Christianity brings to fulfillment the echoes and shadows of the truth that result from human questing and learning. So for Lewis, recovering the idea of myth means opening your mind to understand that there's so much reality beyond what we perceive with our senses in this world. That the, the realm of the kingdom of God is so much broader 
and more amazing and fantastic. And it's not, myth is not a false story. It's kind of like that definition of faith you hear from people sometimes when um, you will occasionally hear somebody define faith as believing something that you know isn't true. Well, obviously, that is not what faith is, or that's a very poor sort of faith if you are uh, benighted enough to believe in something you know isn't true. It's cognitive dissonance there. But this idea of myth and story, hugely important. So last week we talked a little bit about Plato's cave, uh, the reality being behind the cave, the captives tied up in the cave, unable to see anything but shadows. And because that's all they've ever seen, they begin to think the shadows are reality until that one day that someone breaks loose and goes out and sees the sun and sees the beauty of color and sees animals and feels the warmth of the sun. And then that person goes back to the people who are chained in the cave and they're like, you are crazy. <laughs> There's no way. And yet that is the person that has experienced reality. And we are like those people in Plato's cave where we're trapped in these shadows. And we talked about how Hebrews uses this idea of types and shadows all through it. We're going to get to that in a minute. Narnia. Narnia is Lewis's way of escaping past what he calls the watchful dragons of secularism and sneaking in this beautiful story that touches our hearts and depicts the truths of the gospel in a way that is so beautiful and compelling that people are drawn to it even if they're violently opposed to Christianity. And that's part of the power of story. Uh, the circumstances uh, of this uh, creation of Narnia are very random. Lewis talked about how he had this image in his head one day of a fawn holding parcels with an umbrella in one hand standing in the snow. And that that image later caught up with the reality of this having children who were boarding with him when they were evacuated out of London during the Blitz, these four children that came to stay with the old professor. And those ideas fused, and then a lion came romping in, and we got Narnia. So uh, one of the things about worldview with Narnia that's so important is that if you've read the story, how many of you have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe at some point? Okay, that's good. How many of you have read it within the past five years? Okay, the rest of you have homework. Um, <laughs> go back and read it, even if you're on the beach, try to read that. Um, it'll be worth your while. But one of the things that's so interesting in the book is that when Lucy goes through the wardrobe into Narnia, she comes, does anybody remember where she comes out? What's the landmark? The yes, the lamppost. She comes out at the lamppost. And then when Edmund goes into Narnia through the wardrobe, he comes out. And where does he come out? At the lamppost. Same place. They go into exactly the same place, but they come back with two completely different stories, two completely different meta narratives, if you will, of what's good, who's in charge, what's important, all of that. And then the rest of the tale unfolds which one of these meta narratives, which one of these stories is true, which one makes sense, which one yields good fruit, which one yields bad fruit. And it's the perfect metaphor 
for our age today of looking at, we all go out into the same world every day and there are a vast number of people that look in this world and say there is no God, there is no purpose or meaning, there's only pain and suffering and all we can do is just party and hope for the best. So you've got that group and then you have the other group that goes out and they behold the beauty of God in creation and they are drawn in to worship him. And they're seeing the same thing. And then you have to decide, well, which one of those stories is true? Because they can't both be true. So this idea of wonder and discovery, um, the medieval cosmology, we said one of the recent things that's been discovered about Lewis, um, he was fascinated with medieval cosmology and the planets. And only in recent years has a Lewis scholar uh, made a very compelling case that each one of the Chronicles of Narnia represents a different planet in the medieval cosmology. It's a fabulous book called Planet Narnia about that if you want to investigate further. So Hebrews. Hebrews is a fabulous and underappreciated book of scripture. Uh, I would love to encourage you if you are snorkeling or scuba diving uh, to get the book of Hebrews and sit down and read through it in one sitting. So the problem for so many of us when we study scripture, we just read a little bit and you miss this just awesome narrative that is going on. And Hebrews is full of this idea of the power of story and the idea of the symbols that start way back in the book of Genesis that God is using to shower us with evidence of the truth of his kingdom all of these little symbols that are types and shadows of that ultimate reality that Jesus is going to bring. And that when we begin to see them in that light, that each of them is a pointer to Jesus, like a little clue left in history about Jesus, it will awaken your sense of wonder about scripture even more fully. So I want to just read a little bit of this. Look at the idea about where our true home is what we were made for that shows up in this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, and reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he was to receive it as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, 
and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, somebody could write a great book just on that, which I would love to do if I had time. But just for tonight, think about how this passage is describing that very view of reality that we saw in Methopoeia, that whole idea that we are eternal creatures, that we are made in the image of God, and we are destined to live with him forever, that we are eternal creatures in the way that we treat one another matters greatly for eternity. And this whole idea that God has prepared a country for us that is our true home. And Lewis builds on this just beautifully in The Last Battle, the last of the Chronicles of Narnia. But you see the children experiencing a little bit of that in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That when they go into Narnia, there are things about Narnia that are right with a capital R that have gone wrong with a capital W in our world. And the children's hearts are stirred by that. And so when they go into Narnia, there's a sense of wonder. The other thing that you should notice here is that this is very much prefiguring that revelation text, that this kingdom is a city. Now, Jeff was teaching about this just recently. A lot of us have the Hallmark idea, um, the Hallmark card school of theology about heaven, um, that we're sitting on a little pink cloud somewhere with a harp, and that's what heaven is. But scripture is very clear that our ultimate home, there's a new heaven and a new earth that come down, and we enter into that if we are part of the kingdom of God. And so this whole idea of the city and the better country uh, is huge, that we live knowing that our ultimate belonging, our ultimate citizenship is of that country. And you might remember Lewis uses this image of being a citizen of a different country in one of the excerpts we read from The Weight of Glory when he talks about being in a foreign land and then hearing someone speaking your own language. And if any of you have traveled abroad and been abroad for a while in a place where they don't speak English, you know how when you hear someone speak English, you stop what you're doing and you turn around and you figure out where that's coming from because it is calling to you about who you are. And Lewis is saying the same thing, that there are these um, hints and clues that are sprinkled all through creation and all through God's story about the fact that we are made for another place. We are made for another reality. So that informs so much Lewis's idea of story because he wants to break that spell that says this is all there is. Those of you who are old like me will remember a very depressing song that came out I think around 1972 by Peggy Lee called Is That All There Is? <laughs> and if you've never heard it, 
go back to YouTube and just listen to it. It's the most depressed. It could have been Nietzsche's theme song. It's, it's just so depressing. And the thing is, most people in our culture live with the worldview that's behind that song. But they are so desperate to keep themselves distracted all the time so they don't ever have to think about it that they don't realize that they actually have embraced despair which is part of the reason that this story and breaking that spell is so incredibly important. So the song, Homeland, um, which we're going to listen to, and you've got the lyrics to that, um, this is a song that was very well known to Lewis for a couple of reasons. Uh, it was written in the aftermath of World War I in 1918, and it talks not only about the reality of serving your country and giving your life for your country and its ideals, but also that we are really made for another country, the heavenly country. And pretty much every person in England knows this by heart. It's not the national anthem, but it's sung at every occasion. And one of the things about it is that it is scripturally very correct in the second verse where it is talking about the heavenly country. So we're just going to um, listen to that, if I can get it to work. And if you would just follow along uh, with your sheet for the lyrics. And the interesting thing about this is the um, video we're going to watch is from Margaret Thatcher's funeral. And this is at St. Paul's Cathedral. For they rest from their labors. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Isn't she from the Chronicles? Amen. <laughs> so this is St. Paul's Cathedral in London. I want you to just watch the people as they are singing this, but I also want you to follow along with the words.
So just look at those words for that second stanza there. And there's another country I've heard of long ago, most dear to them that love her, most great to them that know. We may not count her armies, we may not see her king. Her fortress is a faithful heart, her pride is suffering. And soul by soul and silently, her shining bounds increase, and her ways are ways of gentleness, and all her paths are peace. And again, if you went back and studied Methopoeia and read those stanzas about the king, where they are minting gold in the image of the distant king, there's just a lot of resonance between that and these words. And one of the interesting things is that England is a very secular country in many ways, but yet, particularly with the older generation, which was, that was mostly people in parliament and big shots that were invited to the state funeral. But it was interesting to me to notice how many of them were singing really passionately yeah, in right. that and not looking at the words. Mm -hmm. And um, it just bespeaks, even things like this are such a stake in the ground for the Christian worldview. Having this idea of even the idea of that the song is called homeland that's operating on both those levels of your, your native country of England for them, but also the heavenly country that you're really the citizen of. So the other thing that Lewis would have particularly liked about this that you might remember is that he loved the Jupiter theme um, from the planets by Holst, and that's the tune for this. Thaxted uh, is the village where Gustav Holst lived, and he was very good friends with Rayfon Williams, uh, who's one of the editors of the hymnal, and that's sort of how that collaboration happened. So, which story can we trust? And I commend to you McGrath's chapter in this book. And I'm going to share just a couple of things out of it. So he posits the question this way. Two different alternatives here. We are here by accident, meaningless products of a random process, i.e. the Henry Fishburne is a cockroach but could have been a rock or a dead leaf or anything else. Um, it's just an accident that he turned out to be the amazing person that he is. Uh, we can only invent meaning and purpose in life and do our best to stay alive or stay busy, even though there is no point to life. And that is the view that a lot of our culture embraces, but they don't follow that to its logical conclusion. The alternative view is we are precious creatures of a loving God who has created us for something special that we are asked to do. We have the privilege of being able to do good and experience purpose as we live by faith in Christ and his kingdom. And this, of course, is the witness of scripture, the church, and the saints, as opposed to the witness of Sartre, Dawkins, and Nietzsche. So the problem is these two stories, in case you didn't notice the big bold there, are totally incompatible. You cannot believe both of these. They can't both be true. But the problem in our postmodern, post-Christian culture is no one wants to be told that. They're like, I can believe both of those. It's fine. But it doesn't work. The problem is that you live in a constant state of stress 
and being torn back and forth when you try to live in both of those worlds. It's complete cognitive dissonance. So the question is, what story do you trust? As in Narnia, is Narnia really the realm of Queen Jadis? Or is she the white witch, a usurper in Narnia, which is really the realm of the mysterious great and noble lion, Aslan? They can't both be true. It's one or the other. And you have to choose sides. And you might remember, um, particularly if you watch the movie, this is one thing the movie does a good job with, is the White Witch says to Edmund a couple of times, Edmund, you must decide which side you're on. And it's true. You can't live with a foot in both camps. But what is so remarkable about Lewis's achievement in the Chronicles of Narnia is that gradually one story about Narnia emerges as supremely plausible as each individual story, whether it's of an animal or one of the children or something else that happens, each individual story turns out to be part of this greater narrative. And it builds and builds like pieces of an interlocking puzzle. And then all of the sudden, all of the riddles the children see and experience make complete sense. And it reveals the utter emptiness and evil of the witch's narrative and the supreme goodness of Aslan's narrative. So the way that Lewis does this, it's like that old analogy that you may have heard of when you look at, I don't know how many of you have been in the upstairs hall, but there's a really pretty tapestry that's in the upstairs hall here that somebody gave to the church about 100 years ago. And when you look at it, it's really beautiful. It's got medieval scenes and stags and stuff like that on it. But if you look at the back of it, it's a disaster. It's all sort of tatted together. There are pieces of yarn sticking out. And you can't see what the pattern is at all. And that is very much the way the story of Narnia works and actually the story of the kingdom can work, that there are all these pieces of yarn. And we have a lot of times no idea what's really going on. But then when you get to the end of it and turn it over, when you pass fully into that kingdom, that tapestry is before you and it's beautiful. And then you can see how each one of those little weird pieces fits into the whole. So I'm sorry I'm reading to you so much, but this chapter is so good that I wanted to try to get it out there. The evocative stories of Narnia affirm that it is possible for the weak and foolish to have a noble calling in a dark world, that our deepest intuitions point us to the true meaning of things, that there is indeed something beautiful and wonderful at the heart of the universe, and that this may be found, embraced, and adored. A good and beautiful creation is spoiled and ruined by a fall in which the creator's power is denied and usurped. The creator then enters into the creation to break the power of the usurper and restore things through a redemptive sacrifice. Yet even after the coming of the Redeemer, the struggle against sin and evil continues and will not be ended until the final restoration and transformation of all things. We each have our unique story, but our own story needs to be brought into connection with a grand narrative, 
a big story which gives our story a new importance and significance. Why? Because we realize that our story is framed by something greater, which gives us value and purpose. Lewis's remarkable achievement in Narnia is to allow his readers to inhabit this big story, to get inside it, and to feel what it's like to be part of it. There's a lot in there um, that I would commend to you uh, to think about. So when you get the PowerPoint in your email next time, um, go back and reread some of that. But the, the idea is that through this story, through embracing the truth of the gospel that Lewis reveals in Narnia using other imagery, we can begin to understand what it looks like to live lives of meaning and purpose here by looking at what transpires in that other world. And part of the reason that that's so important is that here in our culture, we tend to be hypercritical, if you haven't noticed that. Uh, we live in a culture that is very oriented toward complaining or looking for the bad. We don't live in a culture that thrives on encouragement and praise and all of those kinds of things. And so uh, heroics, uh, it's very interesting, this is just an aside, but if you want to do a really interesting study, go back and look at the kind of stories that school children were required to read in this country, starting in the colonial period and going right up through around World War II. And then after World War II, there was a sea change and all the heroic literature went out. And so most students that are coming through school today do not read heroic literature. They don't read, um, we, we wanna tear down our heroes instead. If they read about George Washington, they're going to read about why George Washington was a misogynistic, racist slaveholder, and that we should be embarrassed that he is the father of our country. And that's the narrative that's in a lot of history books. So there, there's this juxtaposition of these um, culturally imposed values against the old heroic literature that's resulted in that being thrown out. But Narnia still has heroes. There's still courage. There's still self-sacrifice. There's still love and kindness and redemption. And it is pure and it is unveiled and you can see it and it stirs your heart because we were made to participate in those kinds of things because those are the values of the kingdom of God. And Lewis, when you get into the story, helps you experience it. It's very hard to read those stories and not get emotionally involved with them, um, to fall in love with the characters. And as McGrath says, mere Christianity, which we're going to talk about later, allows us to understand Christian ideas. The Narnia stories allow us to step inside and experience the Christian story and judge it by its ability to make sense of things and chime in with our deepest intuitions about truth, beauty, and goodness. Lewis shows how the stories of the individual children become shaped by the story of Aslan. Lewis explores the life of faith, lived in the tension between the past and future comings of Aslan, 
who is at one and the same time an object of memory and an object of hope. Lewis speaks of an exquisite longing for Aslan when he cannot be seen clearly, of a robust yet gracious faith able to withstand cynicism and skepticism, of people of character who walk trustingly through the shadowlands, seeing them in a mirror darkly and learning to deal with a world in which they are assaulted by evil and doubt. And I think that's very well said. He's talking about why the story is important, what it feels like once you get inside it. And it's a great example of there's a theological concept called the now and the not yet, which is the idea that we are living, all of us, in this period after Jesus has come. He's died on the cross, and he has risen from the grave and ascended into heaven. And we all know, as we say in the creed every week, that one day we are going to be with him. And that is glorious. But we are in the now and not yet of being after the resurrection and ascension, but before the second coming. And that's exactly where the Narnia stories are. That Aslan has come, he's died on the stone table, and then he has gone back across the sea, but has promised to return, but they don't know when that's going to happen. And they're living out all of the rest of the story in that expectation, but holding on to that memory of Aslan. Now, the other thing that's going on in the story here that's so amazing is there's a lot of deep symbolism in the names that Lewis uses in these stories. Uh, and I'm just going to lightly touch on this because you could write a whole book on this too. Uh, but does anybody remember the name of the professor um, whose house they're in in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Diggory. Diggory. What's his last name? That's very good that you got Diggory. <laughs> Diggory Kirk. Oh, yes. oh. So what is Kirk in Scotland? Church. 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 It is in the house of Kirk that you find the entrance that goes into the land of Narnia. That's not an accident. All right. Who is the oldest of the four children? Peter. Peter. Hmm. <laughs> Where have we heard of Peter before? In the yes, in the Bible, the leader uh, of the 12 disciples and the one whom Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. Who is the youngest of the four children? Lucy. Lucy. And Lucy, does anyone know who Lucy, what Lucy's name comes from? All right, who knows what Fiat Lux means? What? Light. Lux is light. Fiat Lux, let there be light. Lux is light. Lucy's name literally means light bearer. So she is the light bearer. And I would also encourage you, if you're going to reread the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, as you go through it, notice that, in fact, Peter is not the leader of the four children. Lucy is the leader of the four children. And this is radical. Women, especially children, girls, were not usually the main character and the hero of the story. But Lucy is most emphatically the hero of the story. Now, one of the other names, and this is just Lewis sort of playing with us. Um, does anybody know where the name Aslan comes from? 
Close. Um, it's the Turkish word for lion. But the best name of all uh, is the one that most people would never get in a million years. That's Lewis probably just laughing to himself about, um, which is the queen. What's the queen, the white witch's name? Jadis. 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 Do we have anybody in here who is a French lit major? Anybody who's ever read Francois Villon? All right, Francois Villon is sort of like the William Shakespeare of France, <laughs> maybe a little bit of an overstatement. But his most famous poem is entitled Ballade des Dames du Temps Jadis. Does that ring any bells for anybody? At least one person, that's good. So Jadis is Jadis, J-A-D-I-S. And it means, um, it's a little bit like the word jaded. It also has kind of a connotation of old and cynical. But the refrain of that poem is, Mais où sont les neiges d'antan? Where are the snows of yesteryear? And so he's tied all, it's all, that whole poem is all bound up in this. Now remember, Lewis was a world authority on medieval poetry, and he was fluent in French, so he absolutely would have known that poem. So I have no doubt that that's where that particular name came from. So there are, all, there are all of these names going on with all of these layers of symbolism going on. So it is, um, as you reread something that I hope you will contemplate, um, what I would like us to do is to uh, break into groups of about four or five people and just talk a little bit about these three questions here. How can you, if that's too personal, if you want to make it, how can one cultivate <laughs> one's sense of wonder? Or you can follow Lewis's instructions to be vulnerable and talk about it for yourself. Um, how do you know what story you're really living in? What's the evidence of how you know what story you're living in? And the third one is, where are you experiencing Zainzuk, that sort of arrow of desire that points you toward the kingdom of God? So if y'all will break up and talk for about six minutes, um, I will call you back. Y'all right, should be on the last question now. <laughs> or not. <laughs> okay, so I'm sure you're having good discussion, but I'm going to cut you off um, because I can. So, <laughs> but the, the important thing as we, as we wrap up this part of what we're talking about with story is that in the, in the whole concept of what Lewis is trying to talk about with story is the, the idea that understanding which story you're in is really important. And part of the problem is that a lot of times we don't take the time to think about what story are we living in. And we may think we're living in one story and we sort of accidentally cross the street into a different one. And so one of the clues, and I hope this came out in your conversation, 
One of the clues about what story you're living in is what you're really devoted to. What are the things that you are really devoted to in your life? And it's a little bit like if you've ever taken the Dave Ramsey course or any sort of financial course. One of the things they always tell you is that you should get out your bank statement and then before you look at it, you should write down what you say your financial priorities are. And after you've written those down, you should then go and look at your bank statement and see if it actually reflects your priorities. And for most people, um, it's more or less upside down that we spend the most money on the things we say are not important and the things that we say are most important financially, we don't spend that much money on. And the same thing can be true of our time. Uh, there is that uh, wonderful old adage about the fact that everybody is given 24 hours. We all have that same 24 hours, but how we choose to spend it or invest it is what is really important. And so how you know what story you're in, part of that is how you're choosing to invest your time. Just an example of this, we've been talking about friendship for Lewis and his theology of friendship. And we talked about how he was one of the busiest men in Oxford, and yet he managed to spend two and a half hours every Friday afternoon with his closest spiritual friend, who was his spiritual advisor, that he spent one evening a week with his closest Inklings group, and then a morning a week with an expanded Inklings group with those close ones plus a few others. And then he took five or six walking retreats for multiple days with some of those same people every year. He made the time to do what he believed was important uh, that reflected the story that he believed in. So my hope is that we've all been challenged a little bit to think about our story, to think about which story we're living in and that through thinking about this, the Lord may draw us back toward the things of his kingdom because that is the place where joy is found. Let me close this with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the fact that you have made us for another country. We thank you that your kingdom is a place where goodness and truth and beauty reign. Lord, we confess to you that we are drawn by the lures of this world and by our own busyness and self-importance to live in a story that is antithetical to your story. Lord, we pray that you would help us, that we might learn from the wisdom that Lewis brings to this topic, and that we might live lives that are more authentic and that point us to your kingdom. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So just remember, next week, no class because of Holy Week. It's a great time to catch up on your reading. <laughs> And then we will convene again April 4th.